Welcome to Making Chips. We believe that manufacturing is challenging, but if you are connected to a community of leaders, you can elevate your skills, solve your problems, and grow your business. I am your host, Jim Carr, and I'm joined by these two goons. They are my co-hosts, Jason Zenger and Nick Golner. Hey, guys. Hey, Jim. Let's do you? this episode. I'm What's well, up, thanks. Man? I don't even mind if you call me a goon because I don't even know what it means. A goon. A silly, a goon. silly guy. Yeah. yeah. Look at this okay. goon. Look at this goon over oh, okay. there. Is that like a Chicago thing? Yeah, you're yeah. De- like, no, hey, you're definitely. Goon. You know what, Nick? He definitely is a goon. Yeah, but Isn't Nick's he a goon? A, they're yeah, like but, the dumb bad guy, like the henchman. Yeah, but Nick's got like a gold gold chain on. So, I mean, like, you know, <laughs> that's like goon apparel. <laughs> No, you're good, man. I'm I feel just flossing you're all good. The time and Jason's I, jealous. I yeah. feel like you're, did you say you're flossing? Oh yeah. Oh no. <laughs> anyway, so hey guys, you know we talk a lot about pivoting during the pandemic, about making changes. You know, making ships. We we've talked many many times throughout all these 240 episodes we've done about what are we doing to make ourselves better, awareness, and... I mean, that's why we do this, right? That's why we do it, to equip and inspire. And our community. And our community, exactly. So lately at CAR, I've been kind of wanting to change the business model a little bit. As you know, for the last 40 plus years, CAR Machine has typically been a prototype, a low volume, high mix type shop. And... John, my sales manager, says, you know, we really should look into production machining. You know, there's something there, right? A lot of people do it. We just never had the opportunity. So now we do. And we've put a lot of time, energy, effort, and thought into production machining over the last few months. And now guess what? We're doing production machining. So I'd like to share some of the of the the pitfalls we've went through in the last few months about making that transition. I mean, we still do prototype machining, but we're doing a lot of production now, and I'm just I'd like to share my experience with the metalworking nation. I feel like a part of and I don't know if this is something you're going to talk about, but I feel like sometimes you just get lucky. And I don't mean lucky like you didn't contribute to it. I mean like you had a client who you did a great job for and he took a chance on you to do prototyping yep. and you killed it and you found out that it was lucrative and you're like, we should be doing this. You know what I mean? Because I feel like I got into that same thing with vending and integration, say like 10, 15 years ago, and it's been great for us. And I feel like this doing production for you is going to be great for you. And I think that you've you know, done such a good job for your clients that you deserve that work. I think you know? it's going to be great for us. And I'm, I'm yes. going to sell them high density dedicated fixtures with hydraulic clamping and you're probably going to sell them a whole new line of cutting tools. I need to sell and more. we're going to talk about and that. And I need Jim to start episode. machining stainless steel and Inconel and stuff like that. Well, though. we're cutting 304 stainless right now and titanium, so both there you go. careers are really both. just hinged to the growth of car. Right, you know? thank you. Yes. Thank you. Well, believe me. You know, he is the son and we I just am gonna re- around I am going to retire before you guys, so I do need a nice big nest egg yeah, we'll, so I can we'll move around the country and decide where I want to live. <laughs> but we'll see how that goes. But anyway, before we get onto the episode and, and I talk like there's no tomorrow, Jason, tell us what is new at Zanger's Black, please. You mentioned before, you know, pivoting and transitioning and stuff like that. And, and we're doing that. And I'm going to be having a discussion with you both about your post COVID vision or your 2021 vision. And a lot of it does have to do with pivoting. And this year has been stressful for me. It really has. Like it's been exhausting, just so much pivoting around. Like, you know, I set a vision at the end of 2019 
And it's almost like the whole thing had to be thrown in the garbage really? to a certain, well, not like thrown in the garbage, but I've just had other priorities that had to be taken care of. And maybe some things were set aside and other priorities took over, but we're doing well as a company. I, I want to say that first and foremost, I mean, surprisingly well, but it's been a lot of work and I think it's really important to kind of take a step back and also take a break. So this next weekend, I mentioned this to you guys, I'm turning off my phone and my computer and I'm just going to disconnect for like four days with my wife. And I think it's important important for manufacturing leaders out there to do that. And I don't think enough of us, like we say we go on vacation, but I don't think, I know you, Jim, I know you don't ever disconnect. I don't ever You don't either. And I know a lot of other manufacturing leaders out there who don't either. And I had a conversation just recently with somebody who's really stressed out. And I'm like, dude, you need to take a break. I don't care what's going on in your business. You're not leading the company. And this goes for you, Jim, you for you, Nick. You're not leading the company like you could because you're not taking a step back and taking a break. So I'm going to take four days and I'm just going to disconnect from my phone, disconnect from the email, disconnect from everything. You won't just relax. I I don't know how to... Do you you think he's going to do that? It stresses me out too much when I'm 100%. So here's what I'm going to do. I give myself like when I'm on vacation, I do two hours, maybe a day. Oh, that's yeah, that's plenty. That's enough to like just okay, now I can go on the boat. Or but what, what are those two hours? Like checking email and you yeah, know, seeing hand, what's going sure on and stuff like that. So here's what I'm going to do. Text messages I'm, from Jason. I'm going to... I'm going <laughs> to lots of emojis. Yeah, his bitmoji. <laughs> his bitmoji. <laughs> so I'm, I'm very much like you guys where it's hard for me to turn it off. Oh, I know. You know I, what I mean? Yeah, you can't. I can't believe So, But can. here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to find a happy medium. Here's a happy medium. Okay. I'm not going to check in on what's going on. Okay. I'm not going to check my emails. I'm not going to do any kind of like tactical task-oriented stuff. Okay. But I'm going to read some business books. Are you going to send me a bit, bit emoji? No, I'm not going to send you anything. You're not going to even send me a to. picture? Do you know so, what you're going to read already? Yes, I know one of the books I'm going to read. Is, is it? It's called Humanocracy. I just learned about this book, okay. and, and I'm going to I'm going to read is that. Is that like idiocracy? <laughs> no, it's not. It's I'll let you know how good it is after, yeah. after I read it, but it's going to be good. So if you need to get a hold of me, like I mentioned before, you got to find my wife what's on social. The, what's the theme or the premise of the book? So the premise is, is to dividing your company into micro-organizations in order to get rid of as much management as possible and to promote innovation and leadership among these micro organizations within your company. It's something that it's been in the back of my mind, but I couldn't figure out how to articulate it or how to get it done in my business. Like you and Nick, you and I have talked about this a little bit and I've talked about like the franchise model and all this, but but like I think maybe this might provide some insight to me as to how I could do this better in my business. I bet it talks about agile. An agile team structure. Uh, I'll let you know. It's it's, it's very really low on management and more on like self organizing teams. Yeah, ba- I mean, based on the interview that I listened with the author, it, it's deep and it's it's backed up by a lot of data and cool. stuff very like that. Cool. So I'm definitely excited to read it. So let's hear about the manufacturing news, Jim. Yeah, thanks. You know, and it kind of relates to what I'm going to be talking about in my how how we're moving and pivoting the company from prototypes to production. But this is about making robots smarter and safer. And it's by Kip Hansen. He's a contributing editor to SME. I saw this article. I wasn't going to use it. And then I thought, no, it really is good. And Kip, you did a really great job of defining everything. I enjoyed the article. And I I highly recommend that if you can look for it on the web to uh, read it. Automation more than ever. So we know robotic automation saves time, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. We know robotic automation saves money. Mm-hmm. We know robotic automation is essential. We know robotic automation doesn't take breaks. Mm-hmm. We know robotic automation doesn't come late to work or take breaks. 
But now, more than ever, robotic automation doesn't get sick, i.e. COVID. Everyone's concerned about somebody in their facility getting COVID, transmitting COVID. And the fact is, a robot or a cobot or any type of that technology and automation is exempt from getting COVID-19. What if, what if somebody sneezes on your robot and then you touch it? But the robot's not going to get anything. But the robot's not going to get it. And the robot's... <laughs> you know what this reminds me of? What's we that? We had the Iris guy on. Carl. Conan's oh, Carl's the, great guy. The title of that episode was Automation Goes Viral Amid the Pandemic. And the whole point was like, hey, if you got robots doing stuff in your shop, you know, no one's going to be getting sick. No one's going to so be getting sick. it's interesting that we find this article a few months later and it's even more relevant than... More right. and more of our, of our clients are moving towards automation and robotics and, you know, we're even participating in some of that engineering and, and automation for our customers. That's and Jim, you're probably going to be doing that with some it's, of the we're already doing. I've already talked to Craig Soberis about Good. it and... We're looking at a halter as well. So I, I don't I've know. I've got another one for you to take a look at too. Yeah. So, you know, manufacturers are getting it now, right? We're mm-hmm. kind of like opening the, the progressive ones, the ones that don't want to be left in the past. They know that social distancing and mask wearing and temperature checks and plexiglass guarding and more are more the norm now. And we've adapted to a, a safer environment. But what happens when the employee or the employees congregate in a break room or at the coffee machine, the risk of exposure goes up. So manufacturers more than ever now are jumping on the robotic automation bandwagon. And what I read in this article is not only is it robotic technology, the standard, you know, move it from here, put it in there, do that, but they're doing these third-party cameras this new vision systems on the robotics, and it's really creating a lot of eye-opening awareness about how the next iteration of robotic technology is going to move on. Mm -hmm. And it goes on to say an increasing number of customers use cameras to locate randomly placed parts, either on a pallet, on a shelf, or on a conveyor. The robot can determine its orientation, then pick up the part, as well as determine whether a feature exists, a drilled hole, for example, or a barcode, and then make decisions accordingly. This reduces the need for fixturing and and its associated expense while also making robots easier to deploy. Again, so what do we learn from that? There's a third-party company called Fanuc. Fanuc. Is it Fanuc or Fanuc? Probably depends on the part of the I've heard it said both. But anyway, it's their IR vision system. I've heard Fanuc, too. Yes. And you adapt... Tomato, tomato. Tomato, tomato. (laughs) The fact is... Cameras on robots are going to be coming, are going to be the next thing. Well, I think they're already there, right? Like, that's uh, what we talked to Iris. Yeah. Isn't that that's a big why part of what they do? Iris, yeah. You know, like vision. They have a cool logo, right. too. Yeah. Who designed that? We did. Oh, okay. yes, we did. Yeah, we did. As a matter of fact, one of my making ships marketing. Thank and you. I don't know if you've unleashed the new car. Logo I have yet, not, but, but it's coming out on September 18th. I'm going to Ooh. officially let it go. Vision's come a long way in recent years. They say we've we've had it available on our last three generations of controllers. The last two of those, we've made up a big push into 3D vision. I'd love to see that, which uses very fast point cloud-based cameras to map out robots surroundings and we anticipate that both industrial and collaborative robot will increase greatly over the next few years so this is really something that i'm going to be looking at as i make my move to a new facility and start really thinking about what the next one to three years is going to look like when i map out my shop floor and how how parts are going to move around 
within the production space. Especially as you get into the, you know, higher volume type stuff. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, which all, but all all the robot companies that I've been talking to are like it's not just for high volume. It's not yeah. just for high yeah, volume. Yeah, they say that. They always, yeah. tell you they always say yeah. that, but I, I got to see it. It's obviously it's more applicable to high volume. Seems like it. It would yes, it does seem like it. So they're talking about robots in real time. So again, they're going back and they're talking a lot about artificial intelligence. AI is perhaps the most exciting segment of the automation industry. But it goes on to say, and I'll quote this Jason Bartman, fully 40% of robots' ongoing costs lie in its programming. I've heard that before. I'm sure Oh, you yeah. Too, I mean, right? it's just like the new CNC programmer. I mean, your highest paid employees, Jim, are probably your CNC programmer. Exactly. Right? And you, you leave that up to your son to do. He's he is our programmer. He is our right. sole programmer in our shop, or our lead programmer, I should say. But anyway, AI can reduce the cost of, of up to seventy percent. Real time robotics accomplishes this by automating the robotic programming process to determine the most efficient way to get from point A to point B, and then generating a program accordingly. So it's kind of like a CAM system where you're clicking the, the tool paths. This is what I'm seeing is that you're kind of telling the robot by using this artificial vision, this is where you need to go, this is where I ultimately I want to end up doing, and it's saving 70% of that programming time. I was actually at a machine tool distributor's showroom last week when I was in Charlotte. Basically, like, imagine this microphone. He, he moves the robot arm and teaches it, okay, do this, and then he closes the gripper, do that, right? And then moves it again, then do this, then do that, and then he stops the recording. So instead of like that's programming, heard, he's like manually right. teaching it, and then yes. he's saying now repeat. That's right. the that's the basis for like universal robotics. Yes. Like yeah. that's that, the it basis was a UR for, robot. Yeah. Oh. So yeah. That, yeah, that's the basis for how they do things. It's pretty um, cool. Yeah. No, it makes a lot of sense. It's kind of like if you were to, you know, if you were to make an analogy to say like web design, if you've got your, what do they call it, WYSIWYG? Yeah, what you see is what you get. Yeah, so yeah. You, you, you do it that and then there's HTML code behind the background. Exactly, right? yeah. yeah. Or, you know, the other thing that it reminds me of is when you're, when you're watching like one guitarist lay down tracks and then reco- record and then it keeps playing that and then he starts soloing on top of it. Oh, that's there cool. Yeah, there I love when they do that. Oh, I love when they do that. But at the end of the article says that you know there's, they're also utilizing GPS mapping, and it says uh, goes on to say before we had GPS in our cars and our phones, drivers would print out detailed directions to unfamiliar places. Remember, everyone used to go on MapQuest and say, "Oh, print that out." Yeah, right. And then you take your your <laughs> oh. piece of paper, your Mac MapQuest piece of paper, and you'd follow the map along, right? But it's, it's a, I still have but, people at my company who print out the MapQuest. No. <laughs> and you know what? Even though I have navigation in my car, I still sometimes forget to go the direction that the navigation is telling me to. That's, That's pretty today. bad. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. But this says, but even if there was a road closure or heavy traffic, you were in trouble because you didn't know of any way of changing your route on the fly. That's how conventional programming of robots is today. You have to program every individual waypoint for each of the motions needed for any given robot. And if you have multiple robots working together, you have to program each of them to work together harmoniously. It's an arduous time consuming tasks, one that we're able to eliminate. Mm-hmm. So I just thought that was a great article. I think that I'm not going to go on to talk about the COVID aspect. You know what? The next basically, the that, next Nick. headline is COVID makes us pivot faster. Yeah, go. And that's actually my news okay, for the next episode. So we'll save it. We'll save it. 
We'll save that because it's all, there's a whole survey about exactly how much COVID has inspired digital transformation, which is oh, really, I, really, I, really cool. I'm sure. I'm absolutely sure. So the reason I picked this episode is it kind of aligns, it kind of dovetails with how I want to talk about this episode from prototypes to production on how we at Car Machine kind of like made the move to, to start doing this type of work. And it was really grassroots. I, I have to tell you that it was not an easy process. But the old business model for Car Machine, the things that my dad taught me was these non-production jobs, you know, you order the raw material and then you think quickly. And when I say quickly about how you're going to machine the part to make it really easy, a real easy setup, typically in a vice, using common standard tooling, not high performance tooling, and you just get it done. So old school ways is... Here's a chunk of aluminum. It's one or two pieces. Here's the print. You go out to the machine. I would take magnets. I'd put the print right on the machine, and I would start typing. Boom, 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 boom. Just really crude. Get it done. That first program needed a lot of alterations, but we would get it done. We'd throw the part in a vise, take the edge finder, pick it up, and start cutting. No thought. No manufacturing planning about how we're going to make it better because it's all about how you're going to get it done really quick because you don't have a lot of time, right? So the new... So most of the time's in the setup then. The setup is everything. It's all set up. So the new revised business model that we're adopting for production is, and there's a lot here and I want to take it slow, so quoting. So of course... That's the first step, right, is quoting. How do you quote a production job? It's going to be different. It's going to be different. So I I struggled estimating production work for a long time, and I heard way too many times when we'd submit an estimate in large volume quantities, oh my God, your price is so high, and blah, blah, blah. So I pushed my back, and I'm like, what am I doing wrong? What do I need to learn? So is a selfish plug for ProShop. You know, ProShop has a lot of iterations within it, and it's very granular. So I was able to streamline my estimating process in ProShop for production because what it does is you can take a percentage of... So you know if you're running... If you're running a production job, the guy's not standing at the machine all day long. Right, so you right? can like discount your labor then. Right, and I what just the runtime... The setup time is going to be the same. Mm-hmm. Everything else except that time when once the part's ready to go, you've proved it out and the part is running and let's say the runtime is 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. Keep it really easy. Yeah. So that machine's running for 30 minutes. That guy could be doing something else. For exactly. The, so what I do is I take anywhere from 50 to 75% of the time and I allocate it to the job. That other 25% is free. So that reduces the, the cost of the piece. Mm-hmm. And when you have high volume, it's all about the each price, right? Right. So quoting is where I personally was getting but hung up. But within your ERP, you yes. have different adjustments that you can make. Totally. That's awesome. Very granular. Wow. So all of a sudden, you know, the cost of the setup goes down significantly based on the more Well, because you're you amortizing do. the setup exactly. over a thousand yeah. pieces, let's say. And then another really important element to doing a production job or even estimating is the manufacturing planning. And like I just said before, when you're doing one or two or three pieces, there's not really a lot of time to talk about how we're going to look at this job, mm-hmm. what machine we're going to run it, and what type of tooling, what kind of work holding. Those are all really important elements in in that job. And every few minutes that you can shave off that runtime is going to be significant. Yeah. 
as it extrapolates down, right? Well, I always say you want to increase the overall cycle time and then decrease the cycle time per part. Right. Well, if so you, that you know you got a long cycle, but you're getting tons of parts out of it. Exactly. And then your guy can run three machines at once, maybe. Yes, hopefully that that's it. But or your robot, <laughs> or your robot. So in the upfront manufacturing planning stage, collaboration is important. So we're learning to pull out the prints, get a, two to three guys together, talk about all the ideas. Is it going to go in a three axis, four axis, five axis? What makes sense? Why do you want to run it in that machine? What type of work holding? Are we going to use a vice? Are we going to use a fixture plate? Are we going to use a triag rail system? Mm -hmm. Are we going to call Nick to help us build on the rock? To well, we just had a, a case like this where you got a good job and we, we had a solution for it, but then you didn't know if you were going to get them to double it. They kept saying, well, we might double the order. Mm -hmm. Well, the right fixture for one was like, okay, it was like 12 vices. Exactly. And so you were like, you know, we like this because after this job, the vices are still useful. Right. We showed exactly. you a dedicated fixture plate mm -hmm. where you could do like three times as many parts on that face of the tombstone. And you're like, yeah, but I don't know if I'm going to get the volume. So it's like you didn't really know which were we going to go more modular where it's useful after or were we going to go with a de dedicated fixture plate because it's high volume. Right. So what I would say is the higher the volume and the higher the sophistication level, the more manufacturing planning you need. You've really gotta you've really gotta figure out your setup first and foremost. What machine is it gonna be dedicated? We started running this this production job now and sixty percent of our spindle capacity was that one particular customer, that mm -hmm. one particular job. So what that immediately did is it really kind of strangled us from all the other work that we were doing. So it's really important to, to determine what machines and your runtime. Well, Jim, um, the, the other thing you have to consider is getting into production you're, is also going to allow you to iterate on some of these jobs in the future. So you could look at how do I make this job faster? How do I do this at a lower cost? So you don't have to like nail it in the very beginning no, either. No. Because your customer, the one thing you should be aware of, your customer might come back to you and say, hey, Jim, can you make these for a dollar less? Can you right. make them for 10% less? Right. And then you need to go back to the drawing board and say, hey, Jason, can we machine these parts faster? Can we just do something in order, in order to lower the cost of this production? And then you know you partner with people in order to help you to right. provide and that continuous I have improvement. That. Yeah, we're going to talk about and that. I would say you're, you're probably collecting more data than you ever have. And totally. you've got you to rely it, on the data, right, Nick? The data I mean, doesn't you know, the lie. The data doesn't lie. And, yep. and you, know, you need to be able to prove this, these things out with the data. I mean, Nick and I just got done talking about this. Like, we go into to our clients and we say, okay, how do we improve this operation? And we need to have the data that backs it up that we can do that. You sure do. And, and you guys do the same thing with work holding. We do with tooling. Right. But I would also say that when you're doing in the manufacturing planning stage, you have to figure out like if you're going to have a fixture plate, how many times does that operator have to clamp and unclamp? For instance, if you had one piece and you were going to lay it in a fixture, do you have to use an Allen hex wrench twice to clamp one piece, or can you use a six-inch vise or a six-inch a six inch double lock vise, clamp it once, and you've just clamped clamp two, two pieces, pieces rather than 
two clampings for one. Right. You did one clamping like for the, two. Like uh, the Fifth Axis Deuce Vice is a good example. Of exactly. Or, exactly. Uh, Shunk has a really good one with the third hand function. So even if the pieces are different sizes, yeah. it'll clamp the larger one first, kind of hold it there, clamp the smaller one, and then torque them both down. It's yes. really kind of neat design for that vice. Remember, you want to take as much of the human intervention out as possible because that's what that's what kills you. Exactly. So the setup, so determining the correct amount of pieces in your active setup. So if we've got a thousand piece order, what is appropriate for this one operation? Do we want to put two in it? Do we want to put twenty? Do we want to? Well, put you want 100? to maximize your work holding envelope. Well, that's but not if, necessarily like, the truth. I'll tell you, if you why. Make a mistake on one or whatever, and now you you scrapped fifty. Is that what you're going to get? At? Well, here's my thoughts behind that. So let's just say you've got an order for a thousand pieces, okay, and then you you're going to create this fixture plate that holds. 25. Mm -hmm. But the runtime on that is really what is the stark contrast to everything. So let, let's say you're let's say you've got 40 pieces. You're going to load up 40 pieces, you're going to put it in the machine, you're going to hit the button. If that machine runs for 8 hours straight, the best scenario would be that you could unload it, reload it and hit the start button get all before you go home. Yeah, cuz the then you got hours. 8 hours. You mm -hmm. got 8 hours of free time, labor-free time, that that's just right. running lights out. Whereas, let's say you put 100 of them on there, and it ran for 12 and a half hours. You wouldn't be able to get that second load in during your normal business hours to get that extra free Unless aid. you had an extra pallet or a whole pallet system. And, and well, we do have pallet systems. We're, we're using just manual pallet systems. Swap, oh, swap in the next automatic. Yeah, automatic. No, I'm using, we're using manual pallet system. We're looking at automatic. Yeah, sure. And then, of course, on our horizontal, we have an automatic pallet system, pallet right. A, pallet B. So it's really important to determine the amount of pieces that you're going to run and then think of how long that run is going to be. Again, like I said, if it's going to run for eight hours, that's great because you can reload it before you go home and then you get eight hours of. We call it free time. Free time. Know? I call yeah. it lights out time. Sure. And then the next thing you do is, let's say that there's two total ops to get a finished part. You're doing the first op. Does it make sense to set up the first op here on the left side of the table and then op two on the right side of the table? So once you complete a full cycle, you've got a finished part. That's very valuable if you're trying to get throughput through really quick. Yeah. Because otherwise you have to use two machines. One is going to be dedicated to the first op and then the other machine adjacent to it typically in a cell mm -hmm. is for your second op. And this gets really complicated because ultimately the goal of lean is to get to like continuous one piece flow. But right. When you're running machines, you have batches and you know you always hear batching is like the enemy of lean. Well you don't want to do one part at a time. You don't want to do so one part. So it's like at you time. have to figure out what's the appropriate batch size to get you closer to that one piece well, flow. Well wouldn't you Consider the batch the one, one batch instead of one piece. Yeah, but you could you could have too much in a batch. Well, we, of course, we had these yeah, guys yeah. from University of Wisconsin, the quick response manufacturing guys. They had this model that they put on the screen, and they showed us. They kept adjusting until we got the appropriate batch size for the highest throughput. Yeah. That's what people like yeah, Noah I mean, Goldner are for. The, you know? Everything theoretical always has its flaws, and yeah. you know this is no different than that. So yeah, well, you, need you to, got you got models for it. You yeah, know? there's some to, super smart people out oh, there yeah. who know how to put all the right numbers in. I'm not one of them, but right. <laughs> I got an older brother who's pretty close. <laughs> yeah, Noah's awesome. So and the next one is tooling, Jason. So here's where we talk about tooling. So we've talked about quoting. Manufacturing planning, again, very important to have 
people's crazy ideas on the table and then set up how are we going to create the setup how many parts are going to be in that run are we going to run one op two op in the same cycle or are we going to have two de- dedicated machines or are you going to bring it to the five axis or are we going to bring it to, <laughs> or we're going to bring it to the five axis and then the ne- well then there's got to be two because you, there's always one surface you can't hit right, on the right, five yeah. axis so then tooling very, very important. During the manufacturing planning, it's important to, to have a knowledge. First of all, you can't have somebody that's green, that's giving ideas for tooling. They just don't know. They don't know what's available in the market. They don't. To me, I think the variable pitch, high helix, end mill changed our industry dramatically with regard to time. I've said that I know they've been around for 20 years now, but in my time on the shop floor, that really did. Make, that was the wow factor that at was, that point. That, yeah. I mean there's a been a lot of a lot of other things that have come out since then. Right. That but was nothing a, quite that was that. a that was a big change. I mean, Huge. you know, I mean just geometry and grades of of the carbide have just become incredibly advanced, incredibly specific and easy to use. I mean, you know, when you're doing a production job, instead of having to like offset a new tool, I mean, depending on what kind of tool that you're using, I mean, you can almost go to like zero offsets for changing out a a drill head on a drill or something like that, or even like an end mill head. So that makes it easier to go from a cutting tool failing to putting a new one in. Well, I have what, what type of tools run boom fast, what type of tools run with longevity, Minimal wear and breakage. Yep. You want to get it so that tool is doing a lot of work, but you don't want to be changing it out every 10 pieces, No, I mean, right? we, we had a, a perfect change over at, at AME when we spec'd out a new mill for one of your jobs, Nick, where it was running like three quarters of a shift and the new mill that we spec'd out went just over that one shift. Well, that 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 created profound improvements because then when the next guy started on it's the like next his shift, picture example. Yeah, on the next shift, then he knows that that's the point at which he needs to right. change the tooling and it's going to run for an entire shift. Exactly. And, you know, when you're running production, that makes that makes a big difference. Plus, the, the machinist should be taking down data. Yep. This is when I put it in, I ran 100 pieces and I'm looking at the end mill and now it's pretty tired. It's, it is all about collecting the data and that continuous improvement because I mean like you need to know what your tooling costs are, how many pieces you're getting and you need to make improvements on there and being methodical about that and hopefully Jim, you and I can talk about that and we can figure out how we how we could do that for your production. Yeah. Jobs. And, but then again you get, you get the anomaly where you know I, they just told me the other day that they had an end mill it ran for 150 pieces in titanium and it was getting a little worn and i looked at the end mill it looked fine and then they switched they thought oh we better switch it out they put it in everybody loves a new end mill they milk. put it in and it broke within three pieces. Yeah. So, you know, you never know why because yeah. there it's, could have been a hard spot in the material. Like, it's kind of like leftovers. I mean, do you guys like leftovers or you like freshly cooked food? Let's be honest. You like freshly cooked food, right? But even so, so nobody wants nobody wants a worn end mill. In his know? case, the freshly cooked food didn't you know, work. They didn't even get to finish I know, the that's meal. kind of a yeah. weird situation. I don't know. I, I've, I mean, I have no feedback as far as that goes. Well, but it could, it, there's a lot of things it could be. It could have it been, could yeah. be, it, You know who taught me a lot about what you're talking about right now? And I got to give them a free plug because their content was so good, but Harvey Tool. Oh, Harvey Tool's great. Yeah, they do a great job with that. High-efficiency milling. They made the complete guide to high-efficiency milling, yep. and it's all about taking less of a radial depth of cut and more of an axial depth of cut, so you're using more of the tool instead of just yes. at the tip there. And yeah. like, Well, it depends you on know, the I'm material. I'm a work-holding guy, right? So, right. But 
I was together. like you go really together. interested in this, and I learned so much from it. But I send it to the guys at Making Chips and the girls as just an awesome example of how they combined a bunch of thoughtful articles into one really nice guide. Yeah. So sometimes that's why you get the free plug because your content was so good, Harvey Tool. So, sometimes the notion is you don't want to run it too fast or too deep because you think the cutting tool is going to fail. A lot of the geometries of these new cutting tools are made to go faster and deeper. Yep. And, and you want to be able to push it to the point. And even like the coatings and everything that go on it, you want to be able to push it to the point where it's been designed to operate. Sure. And, and I think that, that in order to do that, you need to have the right partners working with you and you and you need to make sure that you're choosing the right tools. And a lot of that happens, Jim, at the quoting process too. How could you go into a quote and understand all of your costs if you don't know what your cycle times are and stuff like that. And that's something you should I have do. somebody helping you You know how with I do that? that? So here's what I do with the tooling costs when I'm in the estimating stage. It's not just the tool. It's the tooling costs, yes, but it's also what kind of cycle times can that tooling I, how, produce How would I me? ever know if it's a brand new... I, I mean, I'm you guessing... You can estimate the, those I'm, things. No, can, I do. I do. Yeah. I have to estimate the cycle yeah. time. But what I do with the tooling is... I look at the material. If it's right. if it's 300, 303 stainless steel, if it's titanium, if it's D2, if it's 15.5 stainless steel pre-hardened to 35 You should be well, using a different tool. I so add, the same tool for like those different... Th- they should definitely be different. But at the end of the day, you generate a cost and you, I put it into the quote based on that. But Nick, with regards to tooling, you know, I know Jason has very strong feelings about the tooling, but I will tell you that it's very important to have a really good, rigid setup. Not only you have to think about getting the part in, getting the part out, and and that type of thing, but you have to really think about the strength of the setup. And well, vibration's the enemy of uh, the life of your cutting tool, right? It so. is. You don't want to be breaking expensive tools all the time, and you certainly don't want your employee changing the end mills and the end mill holder all mm-hmm. day long either. It really starts to erode the profitability. You know, I'm going a, a little ahead of you, but I, I see your next point. Don't put stress on the machine tool itself. That's a big thing. You know, one thing that my Uncle Alvin always says is like, when you do one part at a time, you're whipping around that tool changer constantly. And changing your your tools way too much instead of like when you got a lot a lot of parts set up, you can use the same tool on the same operation on 10, 12, 15 different parts. That's exactly right. And you don't have to wear out your machine tool. Right. Well, the other thing too is where, what I'm thinking where is like if you're taking heavy, so years ago, the trend was really big shell mills, two, three, three and a half inch diameter shell mills with carbide inserts in them. You'd come down, you'd go an eighth of an inch deep. That is really hard on your spindle. Sure, sure. And, and it's hard on the, the motors, the DC motors that drive the axis. Right. Nowadays, it's completely changed. We take very small depths of cut and we go at a very high feed rate. Right, that seems high like RPM. the trend. And it's very easy on your machine and it's going to actually be able to hold better tolerances for you sure. too. But what I mean is like, yeah, if you've got a 3 8 end mill, four flute that's center cutting, you can use that end mill just about to do anything. You can circular interpolate, so you can ditch the spot drill, you can ditch the drill, you can contour the entire outside of the part, come in, do a couple holes, you know, you could do different diameter holes, whatever, whatever the case may be. Use your tool is a multifunctional tool to get mm-hmm. as much done as possible. And then after tooling, well, Jason was right, actually, about it's very important to bring your distributor. They have relationships with the cutting tool manufacturer, and they can give you 
new technology, high-performance tools to try for free. Right. That's the best scenario because it's the latest and greatest. It's free. It's in your machine, and you've got it. And you can collect data off of that. And you can collect data. And believe me, the machine tool... I mean, the cutting tool manufacturer wants that data right. back, right? And then it's what like we you're, ba- from you're doing the beta testing, right? Exactly. We, we, I, don't, I don't know if you remember a long time ago we had Tony Schmitz on. Yeah, of course. And, Tony's and, a great guy. You know, they have a recommended speed and feed for whatever material with whatever cutting tool. But what he taught us is it's the whole dynamics of the system. So the tool, the tool holder, the spindle, the machine, the vice, all of that gets factored in. So just because the documentation that comes with the cutting tool says that it should be able to do this doesn't mean that it will. You have your own dynamics in your own system. So if you're cutting tool guy, it brings you a tool to test for free. Collect, use that to collect the data because you'll actually have your data. Not you know general, what yours is, right? Right, exactly. But when they put that brand new shiny tool in your hand, that's when it's it, you know it might be gonna change. the best thing ever, and it might be the worst you know, thing ever. Ex- so you got to test. It, it might be slower than what you're doing now, right? So, but you don't know until you try, and that's the thing. You got to try. Right. You got to you got to take a little bit of risk, and you got to try. You got to try new things, man. Don't get stagnant. Uh-huh. That's the whole thing. The next thing I have down is customer demands. The customer's on the phone. He's saying, hey, I need 500 of these parts a week. And you know, you look out into your shop and you know, that poor guy at that CNC is only cranking out 250, right? Right. We got a problem here. Right. We got a, we got a 50% deficit that we have to make up on quick. Mm-hmm. So that's when you guys got, you got to go back to the manufacturing planning stage. You got to say, here's what we can get right now. How are we going to improve this process? Are we going to add a spindle? Are we going to add another machine tool? Are we going to add two machine tools? Are we going to set up a fixture so we can run an eight-hour shift and then another free eight hours? That That is when it really starts to help. Or there could be a case where you're just not going to get them the 500 a week. And what we found is... Well, just communicate early and often with your customer. Exactly. So we'll get someone who orders, you know, hey, I need 10 tombstones. And we're not going to get all 10 done by the delivery date. But if we got four or five of them done, we can ship those. We can exactly. go partial shipment. We can get the guy with his A pallet and B pallet set up. And maybe he can deal with the fact that the six are going to come a week later and it doesn't hurt him as bad as it would if we waited to ship the whole thing. It's yeah, I, I totally communicate early and often. I know that's a huge focus of yours. It's one of it's our one, core values. Yeah, and you, you know? talk about it all the time. But, but for us, it's like okay, so there are cases where you're just going to be late. That's it. Just happens in this industry. So it's like if you're going to be late, what can you do to be as accommodating as possible to you know limit the damage that it causes? One hundred percent, Nick. The next bullet I have is automation, robots, and cobots. And you know, we just talked a little bit about that in the manufacturing news area. And I don't have those yet, so I really can't comment, but I know that there's a lot of companies out there that have implemented that technology. And if you have any ideas, please let me know, Jim at makingchips.com. I'd be happy to hear your success stories there. But pallet systems are another way to- we touched on that earlier. Right, are another way to automate either manual or automatic pallet systems. At the end of the day, you just got to make an effort to keep that spindle running because Mm -hmm. if you're not making chips, you're not making money, right? It's the- old metaphor, but it's absolutely the truth. And the last thing I have in inefficiency is part packaging during production. So if that machine has a one hour cycle time, they come off the machine, they're probably 90% burr free. There's a little bit of deburring that the operator is going to have to do maybe down inside of a, a, a slot or something. You might but, have to but, put some oil on it to make sure it doesn't rust or anything. There's usually something, something. you have to do. Well, we clean, we take the, it's funny, we clean the part well, we deburr the part, we clean the part, we 
wrap the part in a typically a bag. If we want to keep it from rusting, we put VCI paper around it, or we just take a little squirt of WD-40 in that bag. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, this can all be done while the spindle is running. Right. So, And it should be part of your manufacturing process. It should be part you know, of You should be measuring how long it takes to do all of that. You right. Know, how long until the package is ready to go? Like right. it sitting there ready for the truck to pick it up. And then the last part is you can prepare all of your documentation for that shipment in advance as well. Some customers require a lot of paperwork, you know, first article inspections according to AS9102. There's packing lists, there's dim tagging prints, there's process and material certifications. And you can you can print all those or prepare those. You know, some customers require paper copies in the box when we ship it. Others, what we just do is we create a, an electronic data package mm-hmm. and we share it like on Google Drive with them so they can just grab it and Ooh, pull I it like down. That. Yeah. We do that often as well. So just a couple of things that we've been doing at CAR, and you know, hopefully that it can help anybody you at the, in the metalworking nation. Again, these are just tips that I've implemented into my shop over the last six to 12 months. If anybody out there has anything that's profound that they want to share with me, I'll make sure that I share it with the metalworking nation or just to educate me. I mean, you know, I'm an old school guy and I'm I'm I have open ears and open eyes. I'm willing to well, Jim, I think to that, look at anything. Th- that's the great thing about the making chips community is I think that you probably said a lot of things that there's probably some guys out there like I did that 10 years ago. Right. But then there's going to be some other people that are like, you know, I really want to get into production. And of course. And this has been very valuable. And that's one of the reasons we created Making Chips. Right. So we can all put our brains together in order to better manufacturing. And that's what we do in our individual companies, too. We put our heads together. We collaborate. We do a lot of manufacturing planning. We talk about how the jobs are going to run. We talk about where they're going to run. We talk about the tooling we're going to use. We talk about the setup. We talk about the work holding. And then at the end of the day, we have success. So at the end of the day, we make chips. Because if you're not making chips, you're not making money. Bam. Bam. Thanks for listening to the Making Chips podcast. Jim and Jason knew that the metalworking nation, the community of world-class makers, needed to commit to a new way of leading to stay ahead of the competition. So Making Chips was created to fill that void, to give you advice from other manufacturing leaders who can push you to take action. Your manufacturing challenges have a solution. And many of them are at makingchips.com.